For several years, most of the state of California, according to the Drought Monitor, has held the extreme drought status. Until late December, until recently here in January, the states received up to five times the annual rainfall. This recent change of events has certainly been a blessing uh, in disguise for many producers in this region, but it's also created several challenges. Joining us on this episode of FieldLink is C.J. Meyer from the Alta Water District in the San Joaquin Valley. C.J. is also involved in the irrigation business, and he'll share some insight about recent rainfalls and some of the long-term impact that producers may face. Also joining us is Matt Bean and Brian Goog. Uh, from Hannaford, California. They'll join us to discuss some of the agronomic challenges that growers may face, as well as some of the challenges consumers may face at the grocery store over the next few months. And finally, we'll travel back to the center of the United States to catch up with Jody Lawrence as we discuss the recent spikes in diesel prices. Stay tuned for this episode of FieldLink. And welcome back to FieldLink. Uh, I'm your host, Bill Smith. Uh, we're excited today to have C.J. Myers. He's a, a member with the Alta Water District in Kingsburg, California. And, and when C.J. is not, you know, participating in the Water District and some of the duties he has there, he's also uh, uh, works for Streamline Irrigation and Services there in California. C.J., welcome to FieldLink. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to be here with you. Awesome. CJ, uh, tell us a little bit about you, your background, um, and, uh, you know, just a little bit about more, more about you and the water district. So the water district thing is pretty new to me. Um, I've actually only been in there for about a month. So at this point, I'm really still drinking out of the fire hose when it comes to, to that part of it. Um, um, I've been in the irrigation industry for 11 or 12 years now, um, strictly commercial, uh, agricultural irrigation. So I think where, as far as the district stuff, you know, I can, I can talk about a little of that. I, I don't know. I, I still have a lot to learn on that end of it, but as far as California water policy here in central California, I've been involved heavily with that over the last uh, 10 years and, uh, had a, uh, a front row seat to a lot of the changes with Sigma and uh, you know, improving our growers' systems to comply with a lot of that, a lot of that new change in policy. So, CJ, clearly a lot's been happening in California. You know, the media uh, for the last I don't know five, ten years, clearly water has become a big issue in that state, as well as a lot of other Western states for that matter. But you know, most recently, you've received a tremendous amount of rain here in the last uh, 30 to 45 days throughout California. Tell us a little bit about where you're located and, and what's really going on in your geography right there. Sure. So we're we're in central California. Um, you know, I live about 20 minutes uh, east of Fresno towards the foothills. Um, and then Streamline, where we operate out of, is in Kingsburg, which is about 30 minutes straight south of uh, Fresno and Fresno is pretty much the main city everybody knows about. So I kind of use that for a reference on almost everything. Um, sure. You know, we've seen a lot of rain over the last um, month and a half. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff you see on the news, they want something exciting. Um, they're not really even talking about our area for the most part. Um, but you know, they want, they want to get people's attention. So they're going to focus on flooding in, in LA and, and maybe some of the smaller 
towns up north. Um, but for the most part in our area, we've had a tremendous amount of runoff. Um, we've also had a pretty good opportunity to capture a lot of this um, water in some of the reservoirs locally. And because the, the snow level has been really high, a lot of this rain has come down the, come down the hill and actually collected in the reservoirs already. So we have a, we have a decent snowpack, but it's, it's really high right now. So we have a lot of water that, you know, we'd like to be storing as snow has come down already in our particular area. Yeah. So the, the, as far as the reservoirs, some of the research that I've seen, you know, they're, they're looking pretty good as mm-hmm. far as, you know, being re, re, re-energized, I guess, or refilled. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's still a pretty good snowpack in, in, in the Sierra Nevadas. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah. You know, snowpack is pretty good right now. And I'm always hesitant to get too excited about it in January because right. I've lived in California my whole life and, We've seen snowpack and rain above average in January more times than I can count. And then we end up grabbing and struggling for water once we get to March and, you know, through the growing season. So the snowpack looks decent right now, but I'm always really hesitant to count our eggs before they hatch here because we've seen this a lot of times where it looks, it looks like a great outlook and then we're scrambling at the last, you know, later months of the early spring. So And CJ, you know, some of the research that I've done, uh, you know, April seems to be the golden month when we can really ground truth, you know, how that snow, uh, snow pack Mm -hmm. is going to impact overall water supply. Is that still pretty accurate in your opinion? Yeah, it really is. And that's a good time to evaluate snow pack in in my opinion. And the problem that we've had is sometimes even if the snow pack is good, if it gets super hot real early, we end up having to release a lot of that at a rate that's not useful. Um, so, you know, a good snowpack and a slow warming in the summer is really what we would like to see. But, um, I feel like especially over the last 15 years, we've had a lot of early heat and that sends a lot of that water down. And, you know, if it's coming down too quick, we just can't capture all of it. We have to make sure we're not going to overflow reservoirs. And so that becomes tricky, but, but yeah, it's, this is the same issue we've faced in California for years and years and years. CJ, you know, uh, clearly the snowpack and the rain is really helping recharge a lot of the uh, reservoirs. But mm-hmm. what about some of the subsurface uh, areas, some of the aquifers? Uh, will will, will this re- these recent rains really impact, you know, that aquifer base? Yes, they will in, in certain areas, obviously, a lot more than others. So the a good example where I live in Reedley, I'm actually – about a half a mile from the Kings River, which is the river that flows out of Pine Flat Reservoir, which is one of our larger reservoirs in our area here. It's about a million acre feet of storage. And um, it's interesting because at my where I live, um, we farm about eight acres of citrus. So I have a, I have a pretty good size ag well. You know, I'll see the water level. I've seen the water level come up in my personal well this year. Um, substantially. And I'm in an area where it doesn't fluctuate much. Mine might fluctuate five or 10 feet over the course of a season. If you go six miles east of me, um, it's a completely different story. You might have 50 to hundred feet of fluctuation in some of these wells. And so the impact on those wells, what we're seeing already is that those are recovering and becoming going to be a lot more useful for this next season. So recharge is happening and, uh, but it's very regional. Um, that's one thing that's really, you know, from a from an outsider, it's probably a little bit 
more difficult to understand these all these different sub basins that we have take recharge at very different rates. So while I can speak to the area that I'm in in that way, um, you know, you go 30 miles a different direction, it's a completely different story. Yeah, I think that's an awesome point. Um, CJ, you talk about uh, from an outsider's perspective, you know, I'm sitting here in Memphis, Tennessee, and I hear on the big news that California's getting rain and everything's mm-hmm. recharged and glorious. Um, oh, yeah. But, but, you're kind of telling us, boy, you know, it's still broken down from a regional perspective of how good is good. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, you know, the news does not do us much service most of the time when it comes to water issues in California. So, um, yeah, I mean, this type of thing happens and they, everybody, they want everybody to think problems are over, you know, and I think, you know, that's really not going to be the case for moving forward in, in agricultural water use for sure. So, you know, CJ, earlier on, you talked a little bit, you've been involved with a lot of policy and kind of keeping your ear close to that. And and you've had a voice there. And clearly now that you're uh, on the Alta Irrigation District Board, you're probably getting a little bit more involved. What are some hot topics that outsiders need to really understand about some of the some of the workings from a political standpoint, uh, from an irrigation standpoint, some of the things growers are facing in your market? So um, some of the biggest issues growers are facing that's a good question there's a lot of them but um locally in my area um i would say one issue that we're facing well first of all irrigation efficiency is something that's got to help um save water obviously and so that's a streamline that's what we're we specialize in is increased efficiency in irrigation and fertilizer delivery um and, you know, switching to micro-irrigation and uh, subsurface irrigation and all these different changes that we can do and then focusing on irrigation scheduling, you know, there's millions of acre feet every year that we can save uh, just by doing that, which is, which is a great thing. But one thing that – one consequence of switching to drip that, you know, at least in our area specifically, switching to drip has made people – a lot more reliant on using well water because it's easier to put a pump in a well and pressurize it than sometimes it is to pressurize surface water. And so the one thing that we're going to be doing, focusing a lot on over the next five years, and we have been over the, you know, five years previous is putting an infrastructure to pressurize surface water in order to apply it through micro and drip irrigation. So that's one of the issues. The infrastructure has changed because you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, everything was flood irrigated in the Central Valley. And there's still a good portion of that that it is. But that, you know, the change of infrastructure so quickly, a lot of people went to drip. I mean, there's a lot of drip and micro went in all at once. And a lot of this older infrastructure kind of went to the wayside and kind of became not usable. And we're finding now that a lot of guys wish they still had that in place and had it usable because the opportunity to take that water and pressurize it or take that water and sink it on their ranches when um, when there's flood release, things like that. So mm. taking the surface water and utilizing it more is probably the, when we do have it, is probably one of the bigger things that we've got to figure out how to do better over the next three to five years. So so just so I'm clear and our listeners are clear, so mm-hmm. when we do get these rains like you're experiencing now, having those mm-hmm. older uh, ditches in place to retain that water mm-hmm. on the ranch is 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 really 
an opportunity yeah. uh, in a lot of cases. Yeah. For instance, we have the Kings River right now. And, you know, the most confusing, I mean, California water is confusing. And no matter what I say, I'm going to, there's going to be people that listen to this and say I'm wrong. And you talk to me in three years and I might tell you I'm wrong. I really don't know. But, you know, the Kings River, for instance, right now has been flowing a lot of water and it's all from watershed below the, the actual dam itself. And so we're sending a lot of this river water past our district specifically. Um, and there's no, there's not really a way to slow it down because it's not coming in from any point where we have a good amount of control. Mm. So it's runoff. Um, so we'll stash as much as we can and sink it in areas where it's useful to us. And then the remainder of it, you know, keep flowing down. So if we can increase our, our storage capacity to sink water further up the river where we are, then that becomes tremendously useful for us. And, and roughly, you know, if we were to sink some of that water, you know, what's the timeline? How long can that water be retained if we were to sink that on a ranch typically? Oh, that's a really hard question to answer because it really varies from, from ranch to ranch. But the way that it's, you know, the way that the water sinking is being looked at here is taking credit for it. So you can use, you know, you can, if you're sinking water off season, off growing season, you can then have credit for that to pump it later. So, and it's different in every single geologic area. Okay. So yeah, it, it, it's an opportunity. You may not necessarily utilize that water, but you, you obtain a cre water credit for that, for right. accessing other uh, water down the road. Yeah. And for instance, like if I were to put a pond in or about in the area that I live, I mean, you might put a five acre foot capacity pond out there and it'll eventually it'll drain in. It might take two weeks for it to sink in, but you go 30 miles south and you put a five acre foot pond and it'll sink that thing every two days, you know, or just drain it just because the, the makeup of the soil is different and is more conducive to actually sinking water. So, so you, you referenced technology. Uh, what kind of trends do you feel are going to be helping growers, you know, as we kind of evolve in this space? Um, it's a good question. You know, uh, I think, probably the, one of the biggest improvements that, that can be made is irrigation scheduling for a lot of growers. And I think you'll, you'll, you'll see that a lot of people are understanding that because you see companies all over trying to do that for people. Um, you know, as a drip irrigation and micro irrigation supply company, we provide a tool to, you know, deliver water and nutrients. Um, but a lot of the time, if we don't educate growers, then the tool's not really that useful. And a lot of the time you see a lot of under or over irrigation. Um, so I think, you know, irrigation scheduling is going to be a big deal. One thing that we're focused on as a company is the, is the actual automation side of, uh, you know, starting pumps, opening valves, monitoring reservoir levels, uh, monitoring well, pumping water levels, um, so I think the technology side of it that relates to irrigation scheduling and being as efficient as we can with that is going to be, that's the lowest hanging fruit to me as far as saving water, either pumped out of the ground or making the water, surface water that we have stretch out and more useful. Absolutely. Yeah. And as technology evolves, all of those uh, tools become more and more effective. And we're seeing that in irrigation all across the country and, and it's very important, yeah. especially in your geography. Yeah, definitely. You know, kind of back to policy a little bit, you know, what are some, some hot policies that are kind of on the forefront right now that, you know, some of your customers are, are looking at, maybe some state legislators looking, legislatures looking at in California? And, and what, what, do you, what do you see happening there in the next, say, 12 months? 
You know, that's a, that's a tough question for me to answer. Um, in the next 12 months, I don't really think there's going to be a lot of change. Um, there's still, there's still a lot of focus on, on Sigma and implementation of that. Um, so, you know, we see a lot of different planning and different, uh, I don't know what the term is, but we our our GSAs are working hard to try to figure out what they're going to do individual individually, you know. So we have, you know, as far as next 12 months in policy, like there's going to be probably a lot of talk, um, but I don't really I don't really think much will change. I think everybody kind of has their hands full preparing for Sigma and getting that all figured out. Um, to where the with the rain and stuff we've seen recently, you know, it's helpful, but I don't think there's going to be a huge effect on any policy because of it. From your perspective, how do you feel this these current rain, current rains are going to impact growers ultimately and consumers really as we look into twenty three? Um, you know, from the grower perspective, it's kind of funny because everybody prays for rain, and then myself included in that, but myself included in the fact that we complain about it once we have it because it sets everything back so much. So we have you know guys trying to prep for planting. And, uh, you know, there's a lot that goes into that from fumigation to soil amendments, to getting us in there, to put underground pipes in, to ordering plants and berming and all this stuff. And so this stuff, all these different inputs that have to happen to develop a piece of ground, they all kind of get piled up at once. And there's just only a certain amount of contractors in our area. So it's not like, you know, you need to get a guy out to mark your field for planting while there's like five or six guys and they're all in the same boat. They have everybody screaming at them to come out and get stuff done. So the biggest impact, um, you know, for, for us is that it's piling up all of our work at once, which, sure, which is difficult, especially in California where, um, our labor laws are getting more difficult every year to, to deal with and stay profitable. And, you know, so they, they keep giving us hurdles. And so rain, rain years like this, it gets very difficult to get the amount of work that we need to get done, you know, as a contractor, but for the grower, it creates a lot of, uh, a lot of stress and a lot of, sometimes stuff will just get pushed back a year. So, I mean, then that's a huge, huge deal for, for a grower. Um, but yeah, the immediate effect, I think we're seeing good, the other immediate effect we're seeing is like you mentioned earlier, is we're seeing some recharge, which is, which is helpful. And, um, you know, I think a rain like this is going to be good for our area because they'll look and go, wow, we need to invest in infrastructure so that we can do more good for our area with this water that's come, that's flowing past us. So, yeah, and I think, you know, like, like most agriculture, uh, when you do get rains like this, it bring it changes attitudes and, um, mm-hmm. you know, and yes, there's probably some additional stress because of, you know, your workload gets a little more compacted, but at the end of the mm-hmm. day, you've got, you've got rain. We've gone in California. You tell me, I mean, it feels like five, six, seven years without good moisture and just having the skies open up is, yeah. is, is an attitude adjustment in a lot of cases. No, it for sure is. And I don't want to sound like a, you know, overall, this is great. I mean, this is a great thing. Um, you know, I wish it happened more frequently like all Californians do, but yeah, the rain definitely has, uh, been an attitude shift for, for most people involved in ag around here. And it's, it's, it's very pleasant. Right. 
And, and I think you touched on something really important. It, it highlights maybe some of the uh, infrastructure needs that we truly do need in agriculture, especially mm-hmm. uh, throughout Central California and other parts of California, for that matter. So when these rains do come, we have the ability to take advantage of that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we have we're dealing with, you know, 100 year old infrastructure in certain areas, 100 year plus um, here in Central California where we're operating and. You know, in the last 50 years, I think we've torn down, you know, 40 or 50 dams in the state of California, and we haven't been able to add anything up to this point. And, and honestly, I think it would it would be helpful, but I don't know that it's physically possible to build a dam in California anymore with the way with all the challenges that that go along with that. Uh, do you, are you referring to like regulatory issues or? Yeah, environmental issues, and you know, our state is is is. Um, I guess the best way to put it is um, there's a lot of very polarizing opinions. So you have the farmers on one side who, you know, are growing food to feed people. And you have the environmentalists on the other side who are, you know, they're a lot of the time, you know, we're, they're trying to preserve, you know, their, their intentions are good, but at the same time, we're also trying to preserve an artificial environment. Um, you know, like the river that I live near, you know, as much as I love it, I love fishing there and I love taking my kids there and kayaking and everything. But at the end of the day, it's not a natural river channel anymore. In my mind, this is a, this is an, this is an irrigation canal that we're, that we're using, um, to deliver water. Um, so we have this weird place where, um, nobody can really agree on anything. And the environmentalists, unfortunately hold all the power in California. Yeah. Well, and I think it's important, you know, you pointed out earlier, your infrastructure is in a lot of places over a hundred years old and mm-hmm. heck, even the water district that you're a part of in Alta, uh, it was founded in 1882. Um, mm-hmm. and, and those district boundaries still encompass 129,000 acres um, mm-hmm. with 111,000 cropping acres for one water district. And and you referenced it. Some that hundred and eleven thousand acres. We're not talking wide open corn and wheat country here. We're talking some intense crops uh, that are grown in that particular water district. What are some of the top crops grown right there geographically? Um, you know, it ranges a lot, but it's mostly permanent crop. Um, we have a lot. There's a lot of citrus, a lot of nuts. You know, there's a lot of almonds, pistachios. Um, we have. You know, towards that's on the north end of our district. It's mostly uh, citrus in in that area. Um, there's still a lot of stone fruit up that way too, but it's so mostly stone fruit, citrus, and uh, and nut crops in our area. Yeah, and that's that's my point is you know in this 111,000 acres, those are intense crops that are you know like you mentioned permanent, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know having that infrastructure right is really really important long term. Uh, for the viability of that area, as well as, you know, the needs to feed feed the globe, really, because yeah, that market definitely feeds a wide population, uh, not just the United States, but globally. Oh, yeah. No, we've seen, I've seen fruit from our area all over, and we get texts from friends in, you know, New York and Missouri, and they get excited when, you know, we have family that texts us, hey, this fruit's from, from Reedley or from Kingsburg or whatever, and it's, it really does make it all over the place, and and the infrastructure thing's a real deal. I mean, every year it gets more expensive. Every year it gets harder to deal with the, any of the groups that you might have to deal with in order to uh, get anything done. So, I mean, 
there are some real challenges, um, and I'm not just talking about the area I'm, I'm in, but most irrigation districts have a lot of challenges over the next, uh, really, you know, moving forward, they have a lot of challenges, but over the next 10 to 20 years, um, we got to figure out how to get some things done. Yeah, definitely an area of, uh, uh, that we as a society, as a nation, need to put some focus on as we continue to grow our population, not just in the U.S., but globally. Uh, the food demand is not going away, and we need to be prepared with infrastructure. C.J. Yep. Myers, I want to thank you for joining us here today on FieldLink. Uh, we really appreciate you jumping on and joining us from Kingsburg, California, to Share some insight uh, from your perspective of as a water expert, uh, as a member of a, a water district there at the Alta Irrigation District, as well as, you know, an employee with uh, uh, Streamline Irrigation there in Kingsburg, California. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And at this time, we want to travel on down to Nashville as we bring in Jody Lawrence to commentate about some of the grain markets that are going on right now. Jody, when it rains, it pours. And we certainly have had a lot of moisture in that Western Corn Belt. And uh, it certainly impacted some of the grain markets uh, here in the U.S., as well as a lot of rain down in Argentina impacting grain prices today. Jody, what's the latest update on the grain markets? Well, Bill, it's great to be back. And as we record this on Monday, January 23rd, uh, the last several days and over a weekend, it always becomes a little more volatile in the reaction. The pattern has begun to change in the driest parts of Argentina, getting their best rain and rain coverage in months. And you look at uh, kind of where we are uh, a week or so ago, November beans were trading uh, at or a little bit over $14. We're trading thirteen thirty-eight today. December corn, right after the USDA report on what was that Thursday, the 12th. Right was uh trading uh at 612 and now unfortunately we're all the way back to 586 really just a matter of the market is viewing this pattern change and the potential for additional production in argentina and brazil as a as a bearish factor that uh, uh is going going to cause more supply than the current demand trend is going to be able to uh, chew through so uh that, you know and that's that's what we're seeing the USDA uh provided a small window after the report and mother nature took it away as we seem to so often see we saw it in june uh the, the June USDA report gave us an opportunity, and then it began to rain in the U.S. So this is not an uh, unprecedented event by any means that we get pattern changes right at critical times during the growing season in the northern or southern hemisphere. Uh, but it's certainly painful when you watch it because uh, uh, I'm certainly dealing with the regret of, gosh, I wish I had sold more old crop, more new crop, recommended this, recommended that. And that's just uh, the the problem of marketing. Uh, do you, you you try to stay out of the woulda, shoulda, couldas because it stresses you out and you just need to start making decisions and realize that you made the best decision you could at the time that you had. So Yeah, and that's right. And, and, and you know, uh, we, we, we sat on this podcast all last year at, talking about how dry it was out in the Western Corn Belt. And now we finally got that moisture. And yeah, it's going to impact our wheat prices and some, some of the other commodity prices today. But uh, 
hey, it's a, it's a long game you left out there, right? And and boy, that moisture is very very critical for those growers in western Nebraska and Oklahoma and Kansas at this time. Absolutely, it's it, to say this is especially for the western corn belt and the southern plains. A, a crop maker uh, would be too large of a stretch, but looking at the models, the market is pricing in a pattern change. And certainly if you get over the next three or four months, the Western Corn Belt, Eastern Nebraska, Kansas, uh, Western Iowa in particular, back up to good soil, subsoil moisture levels and just kind of a normal water profile heading into planting, you'll, they will have, the markets will have a much different attitude. And right now they're they're pricing in a pattern change, which, uh, you know, you can't say they're wrong. You can't say they're right uh, because we have so much time to go. We've certainly seen this happen. Uh, weather mar Every weather market gets its spikes and its dips, and we'll just have to uh, play the long-term patience game and jump on the opportunities when they present themselves. Yeah, I think you're spot on there. And as we take a look in uh, Argentina and that market there, there's still a, a little bit of time yet. Uh, that that crop's not completely done yet. And uh, a lot that can happen uh, between now and harvest uh, in, to our friends down in South America. So certainly could impact that global supply as we... Uh, yeah, the, and the way I tell everybody, and there are a couple of weeks on either side of this, but just think about, okay, we're at January 23rd. Uh, they're in the Southern Hemisphere, so add six months to that. Think of all the things that can go wrong from July 23rd on your crop until you get it in the bin. So this is not, a, yeah, it, it's the game's not over by any means. This is just a, you know, a, a bad couple plays in a long series of a game. And I think that's important for U.S. growers to keep that in mind as we take a look at today's commodity markets that have taken a little bit of step back here, but, uh, you know, we got a lot of time ahead of us. Jody, let's talk a little bit about diesel. Boy, we you offered some really good advice to our listeners here over the last 30 to 45 days. What's going on in the world of diesel today? Well, crude keeps just uh, trekking on up. It was trading. Uh, on a couple different podcasts, trading down in that uh, 70 to $72 range, where it became apparent that the U.S. Department of Energy was refilling the strategic reserves. And in that level, and the U.S. Became, was active uh, it, it, at that area, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, for uh, quite a while while it was down there. And diesel on the March futures was trading in the 385 to 390, or excuse me, the 285 to 295 range at that time. And then uh, we saw uh, China getting a much better response from their change of COVID policy. They announced that they will be a larger or intend to be a larger importer of both crude and diesel in 2023 and 2024, which uh, gave a little spark to the market. Several private, or uh, I say private analysts, but several of the big investment banks have uh, set targets at $95 to $100 a barrel for crude. And sitting here at 82, and that $10 rally in crude diesel went up uh, right at 60 cents. So if crude were to put on another 10, we will be back in that scenario where diesel futures are trading over $4. And at the pump, you're going to see a, a number uh, exceeding five again. 
until they get some more refining capacity in place. Definitely a lot of movement there in the diesel market. And boy, that global narrative continues to play an impact uh, the U.S. market, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And in China in particular, in China, how they come out of they're in their week long holiday celebrating the Lunar New Year this uh, this week, which always slows down their activity. But when they come back from it, and if the uh, vaccination rates increase, if the COVID cases go down and the lockdowns stop, China really is going to be potentially the biggest bullish wild card, or certainly the biggest non-weather wild card that could be very bullish. Because if they come back guns blazing with all the government stimulus they are putting in to restart their economy, then you're, you could see Chinese demand really begin to ramp up, which would help offset the uh, extra supply days like we see today with a demand engine that could chew through some of these extra bushels. Lots happening definitely globally. You know, we continue to, to, to uh, stay close to this energy market and better understand that uh, because, boy, things are changing on a day-to-day basis there. Jody, we've got a lot of reports coming up here soon with the USDA as well as some other global reports. What's coming around the corner? Well, we'll have the monthly update from the USDA in February. That will not be nearly as big of a deal as the January was because they won't go back and alter any of the 2022 crop, but they will give some supply and demand information. The bigger ones coming up are going to be the USDA uh, Ag Economic Forum, which will be coming late uh, February, and also the prospective planting report where they are giving their best estimates from all of their economic models and uh, their calculations about how many acres the U.S. farmer intends to plant. We already know that about a million and a half to two million extra acres have gone into winter wheat this year, uh, largely due when the price of wheat was so high post you know, after the invasion than during the summer. That's going to be something to account for. We know cotton is losing acreage because, unfortunately, the we're just we're still straggling below the co- the break-even cost uh, to plant cotton. So, where corn and beans fall, it's always in the mix of eighty-eight to ninety million for either one of them. And right now, both of them uh, have taken a hit over the past four days of trading, but at 586 December futures and 1338 November beans, corn is still favored uh, just a little bit. It was favored before. Now it's favored, uh, I think, just a little bit more, depending if you're just doing average calculations across the country. And with that, you could see corn getting to 90 and beans somewhere in the 87 to 88 million acres. Uh, and We'll we'll just have to see how everything plays out because one of the interesting things about this transition from El Nino to La Nina is that it typically indicates you're going to have a wetter spring, not necessarily cold and wet, and certainly doesn't say that it's going to be a 2019 Eastern Corn Belt washout up until June, but it does favor that. So the acreage mix, you can decide right now during 
prepay what you intend to plant, Mother Nature is going to have the final say. And we've certainly seen some million, million and a half, two million acre swings between corn and beans in the past you know, seven to eight years that you can't feel confident uh, in late January saying this is what's going to be planted and, you know, this is going to be ending stocks. So much, so much to play in both South America, Southern Hemisphere, and U.S. and Northern Hemisphere over the next, you know, nine months until we start to get it in the bin. Wow. A lot happening definitely globally. And, uh, you know, as we look at these supplies, you know, it's going to be very important for growers to have a good plan and stay close uh, to their marketing and trading advisors and their Helena representative if things evolve throughout the next uh, couple of months before planting really starts in. Jody, you're going to be on the road uh, here over the next uh, 30 to 45 days. You're going to be at the Mid-South Gin Show uh, February 24th uh, in Memphis, correct? Yes, that's that's right. We're going to come down and uh, kick some tires on some big pieces of machinery and eat some ribs at the rendezvous, I hope, with a few of the listeners on this podcast. And it's a home game for me because I grew up in Memphis. So I'll get to see dad and hang out with him for a little bit in the middle of this and uh, uh, just catch up with all of the great people at Helena that'll be manning the show and all the rest of the people in the industry that we've been fortunate to get to know through the years. All right. Then you're off to uh, Orlando, Florida, to the Commodity Classic. We'll see you down there uh, on March 9th through the 11th. Uh, We'll catch you there then, Jody. Yes, uh, and we'll be at the Helena booth. I think you and I are going to do a couple different podcast segments, and I'll be hanging around for anybody to come uh, uh, talk about markets or really just talk about anything in particular. I got to, uh, it, it'll it'll be fun. I uh, hope hope the weather is good, which I'm sure it will be in Orlando. And uh, since I am not a Disney person or a theme park person, I'll be just as happy on the floor <laughs> of the commodity classic as I would be going to see some of the rides. All right. Well, we look forward to seeing you here in Memphis as well as Orlando at the commodity classic in the gin show uh, coming up here in February and March. And uh, Jody, I want to thank you for joining us uh, today here on FieldLink Podcast. Uh, look forward to catching you next time. Okay, Bill. Thank you. And recent rains across the western part of the nation, particularly in California, have been both a blessing and a curse for many growers in the region. In the past 45 days, the states received nearly five times the annual rainfall. Well, that much-needed rain uh, has been a blessing for many producers. The vast amount in such a short time has created new issues for the previously drought-stricken area for local fields and orchards. So how will this recent occurrence impact growers and consumers for the next few months? Well, we're going to find out. Joining us today on FieldLink is Matt Bean and Brian Googe from Helena in Hannaford, California. Both Matt and Brian work closely with growers in Central California, and they have an intimate understanding of how the recent rains could impact growers' decisions for 2023 and how some of these recent destructions could impact food prices for consumers around the United States. Well, Matt and Brian, guys, I certainly want to welcome both of you here. Uh, We're just going to jump into it. Matt, um, you know, tell us a little bit about your background and your responsibilities as a branch manager at Helena. I'm a branch manager, like you said, in Hanford, California. It's in the center of the state. Um, If you're familiar with the state of California, the biggest city in the center of the state is called Fresno. We're about an hour south 
of Fresno. And so I'm a branch manager. We have six sales reps. Um, we have some support people that deliver fertilizer and, and, and uh, ag chemicals. Um, previously to being a branch manager, I worked in Helena as a agronomist and a product manager. So I've been with the company a long time. Some of the crops we service um, here in this part of the state would be our permanent crops. Those are trees and vines. The trees would be the tree nuts like almonds, uh, walnuts, pistachios, Grapes would be raisin, um, wine grapes, and then all some of our, our row crops, so tomatoes, um, and some of the crops support the dairy industry. Uh, we do grow corn in California. Most of it is used for silage, so it goes into a, a bag or a pile, as well as wheat that we grow uh, for the dairies as well in Triticale. So those are the major crops that we deal with. Well, you have quite a range of crops there. What, about 20, 30, 40 different crops? Or I know the state of California boasts around 400 plus crops. Sounds like you're right in the middle of it all. Yeah, no, there's, there's a big mix. There's quite a big mix. You can be standing on a, a corner of an avenue or a road, and all four corners of this road or avenue, you could have a different crop. That's very, very common. Wow, wow. Excellent. And and also joining us is Brian. Brian, uh, um, you get to work with California growers every day. What brought you into the industry? And tell us about your journey. So I've been with Helena for about 26 years. I started in the summer of 96 as an intern. Um, back in the high school days, I started taking some FFA classes. I had family that farmed, but I was never involved whatsoever. But through the FFA classes, kind of took a liking to ag. Going into college, I knew I wanted to be involved in ag, but didn't know exactly what. Um, eventually, was able to hear about the Helena internship program. I was able to become an intern. I loved that first year. Did a second year and also a third year. And upon that third year, the plan was once I graduated after that year, I would be coming on full time. And, did uh, two years of a sales trainee position and been full-time ever since. Wow, that's an awesome journey. Uh, that's exciting. Started right out of college as an intern with Helena and kind of grown up through the industry. Well, welcome both of you guys here to FieldLink. Uh, you know, to kind of tee it up a little bit, I think, you know, most of our listeners may or may not be aware that California produces nearly $43.5 billion in agriculture products annually and is ranked number five in the world in terms of agriculture production. Plus, the state also ranks number one in the U.S. for the production and export of crops for the past 50 years. As we talked about earlier, there's over 400 crops uh, produced in this state that, you know, definitely hit all of our plates uh, every day. So uh, we're really excited to really focus in on California and some of the challenges as well as some of the opportunities uh, that are, we're all facing here. And Brian, um, many many of the customers uh, in your area have uh permanent crops such as almonds. How have these recent uh, rains impacted these particular crops? Definitely a very positive thing. Um, so we've spent the last two plus years in a significant drought. Um, most of my business is in the Westlands Water District, the west side of the valley in our area. And we were coming off of two years of 0% surface water allocation. So that means basically almost 100% of what has been applied has been pumped out of the ground. And the wells we have out west are pretty terrible, loaded with plenty of sodium, boron, chlorides, a lot of negative impacts there. It's wet, so we do it to farm these acres, but there's a lot of negative impacts that comes with that. So with these rains we've had, um, it's made some challenges as well, but it has allowed a lot of these salts and bad things to be able to start leaching out. Guys that got on amendments prior to these rains are sitting very pretty right now, uh, able to break those down and get to work in as they need to. Still got some of that to go. Guys didn't get it in time, but hopefully we got plenty of rain ahead of us still. So yeah, very positive thing just as far as what's gone on to point. Um, and gonna be a very positive thing for us moving into this year as well. 
Hey, Brian, you know, you referenced, you know, the surface waters. And, I, and for some of our listeners that are not familiar with irrigation, can you talk about surface water uh, versus, you know, some of the other uh, uh, forms of irrigation in your market? Yeah, so surface water, I've always seen as kind of the, the number one thing you want. The systems that it's delivered in is always a very simple system to use for a grower. doesn't require much power to make it happen uh, versus a well where some of the wells out in the west side were going 2,000 plus feet deep to pump this water. Uh, you're talking five, 600 horsepower motors to get it out of the ground. Uh, electric bills are through the roof on some of that now, so your cost of pumping water can be 300, 350 bucks an acre foot just to pump your own water out of the ground. Um, the surface water, like I said, a very simple solution for delivery. And although costs have gone up on surface water allocations over the years, still cheaper route to go. And then you back to the point I was making where your well water is pretty dirty water, not very good water. Surface water is generally very clean, on occasion too clean, but we can really use that clean water to help us. Definitely. Brian, tell us a little bit about some of the customers you referenced that had some of their, you know, fertility down prior to these rains. Uh, what, what percentage of your customers had some of their fertility in place prior to some of the big rains? Uh, Amendment-wise and potash-wise, I probably had around 60, maybe 70% of guys completed with all that work before the rains really set in on us. So I got that balance left to go here. And the next couple of weeks, this week is opening up for us. going to be nice and sunny and dry. Uh, we expect a little more rain Sunday, Monday, or Monday, Tuesday of next week. Uh, not a huge expectation of something there, but we got some work to get done while we do have some dry weather, and hopefully we can turn this back on in February again. Sure. So uh, you're getting ready you know, three, four weeks out from a pretty darn critical time for almond growers uh, in, the, in that area. Um, almond bloom is going to be around the corner. What are some of the... Uh, you know, challenges that, you know, growers may face this year that they haven't had to deal with uh, over the past several years because of this moisture. A couple of thoughts on mine there is some of the physical things we got to get done. We got to get some herbicide work done on a lot of these fields as well. And certain herbicides, you have to get them applied prior to the almond bud break and they start pushing and growing. So we're trying to get some of that done here quickly. If we don't get that done before the crop starts, we do have other options for herbicides that do not have those restrictions. So we got some flexibility there. Um, there's guys that stuff do a lot of mummy shaking in the almonds, and you want to get that done before you get much growth on those things because you'll start breaking off your, your new growth and breaking off the bud. So that's pretty critical here soon, too. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm the new guy here. Uh, what, what, mummy shaking. Tell us a little bit more about that. So a mummy is considered a almond nut from last year that is stuck on the tree still over the winter. Um, navel orangeworm is one of our biggest pests in almonds as well as pistachios. And you want to get those off the tree and destroyed, either buried in the ground with disking them in or uh, flail shredding them, mowing them to destroy them so we don't have a carryover of orangeworm pressure coming into the year. It's the number one thing you can do for uh, sanitation to, to keep your orangeworm population down. Awesome. Thanks for the info there. Uh, any other tips for, for uh, almond producers or nut producers in your market for uh, as they're looking at 23? Yeah, the other thing I was thinking of there is as <clears throat> we are forecast to see quite a bit more rain come February. Um, so if we do see a lot of rains during that bloom period, we're definitely looking to get some fungicide shots on. My typical program is we get into that early bloom stage or pink bud stage. If there's rain in the forecast, and I would typically apply a fungicide at that point. If it's going to stay pretty dry through that period, then I don't really apply one. As we get into full bloom, I will apply a fungicide regardless of weather. 
there's benefit to doing that regardless if we get rain in the forecast or not. If we're getting rains throughout that period, the number one choice is to get in by ground and make those applications. We can put on 100 gallons of water an acre, get excellent coverage in those buds and blooms. Um, but if it's too wet to do that, we got to shift some of that to aerial applications, which are not as effective due to just coverage. We're going to apply 15, maybe 20 <laughs> gallons of water an acre compared to the 100 by ground. So maybe some shifting in that direction as well. And hopefully we can even get in by air in some of those cases. Wow. Yeah, definitely. Uh, growers haven't had to deal with, uh, you know, some of that moisture in the past here, most, most recent years. And uh, fungicide is certainly going to be a critical part of their program this year. Matt, um, you know, your branch touches other crops beyond, the, uh, you know, the almonds and pistachios areas. Um How's the rain impacted some of these crops, as well as vegetables? So our primary crops that are non-tree crops this time of year that are on the ground and growing is wheat. Um, we plant wheat or triticale in the fall. That'd be the October, November timing. This crop's planted, it overwinters, and it really takes off growing when things start to warm up in January and February. And if we don't get rains in these winter months, we have to um, supplement with irrigation water. And irrigation water is good, but it's not as effective. It just doesn't work as good as just the rain that leaches the salts out and provides just the right amount of moisture. This also affects our fertility. Um, you need nitrogen to grow wheat. If you, it doesn't matter if you grow wheat in California or Washington or wherever. And so we can fly on urea, which is a very cost-effective form of nitrogen, and the rains will wash in the urea. If we don't get any rain, then that kind of scratches your nitrogen application with urea. We have to apply another form of nitrogen called um, UAN32. Um, some of your listeners might use 28%. We use 32% out west. And so we have to, it's called a water run. And as we irrigate these fields with flood irrigation, we dribble the nitrogen fertilizer in the irrigation water. And as the water spreads to the field, so does your nitrogen. And that's not as good of, as, of an application. It's not as uniform um, for various reasons, but it'll work. Um, so overall, the, the rain has been really good for fertility, um, putting on the right amount of nitrogen, getting it applied you know, uniformly, and as well as having a really healthy plant that is just looking really good. So it's been good for our, our row crops, specifically um, wheat and triticale. You know, Matt, um, as far as uh, some of the vegetable crops outside of maybe your market, uh, what what are you hearing from some of your colleagues? You know, what what's the crop looking like for, for example, lettuce and some of these other trucking crops, maybe further south uh, from you, from some of your other fellow branch managers? What are you hearing from them? So by this time of year, most of the lettuce is coming out of the Yuma, Arizona market, which is right on the border of California, Arizona. And so previous to that, it comes out of pretty close to us. There's a little town called Huron that grows some lettuce. And the pricing, at least what I've heard recently, has been really good because there's been a, a pest in um, the Salinas Valley where most of our lettuce is grown during the summertime that has spread some type of virus. I can't recall the name, but it's really devastated the crop coming out of Salinas. And so the, the price and, and with the value that these, these farmers were getting for their lettuce is really good. And so once this lettuce goes through Yuma, it kind of gets too warm there in, in April or March, whatever, then the market will move back to Salinas Valley. Uh, but it's they've had some issues getting they've had just like we that's what's been so unique about these storms we've got. Usually in California, you get a storm in the center part of the state will get wet. The northern part will get wet or the southern part. We've got wet from north to south and just record amount of rain in a short time. So we even got rain in some of these desert areas where we grow our winter produce. And that's kind of slow down harvest, slow down growth um, and, and their operations there. Uh, you bring up a great point. You know, the whole state's really gotten moisture, and, and it certainly needs it. Um, 
uh, great snowpack in the northern areas that uh, clearly going to be important as uh, we as summer progresses, uh, as long as it doesn't all melt off immediately. <laughs> if we have a nice <laughs> slow thaw, that'll impact everybody regenerating those reservoirs for sure. Um, you know, uh, what kind of uh, tips, uh, uh, Matt, uh, do you feel are going to be pretty important uh, for growers to be keeping an eye on, you know, uh, in your market as you take a look at, uh, you know, 23? I would say just looking, keeping track of, you know, your inputs. Um, inputs have changed a lot. If, if we were to talk to a grower about how much fertilizer was going to be two years ago, we'd have a different story than we would last year. And to try to project what it would be this year, we have guesses. Uh, but just look at your inputs, look at your market, look where you're spending money. I know everybody's trying to save costs on some of these commodities that are a little bit leaner, um, but just try to put your value, talk to your crop consultant, or your sales rep, and where they could put their inputs, where they'd be benefit their um, their production system the most, you know, because you want to put your assets or, or your resources where they're most benefited. Yeah, I think that's a great point that growers definitely need to be, you know, tied to the hip right now uh, as, as the market's changing and as Mother Nature's changing it for us uh, and, and some of these unique markets for sure. Um you know, Brian, let's talk a little bit about some agronomic tips that uh, you can provide to tree growers in the market. And, and how is agri-intelligence being used in some of these solutions, especially after these rains? Yeah, I do use that quite a bit. For me, primarily, I'm using that in the fall time, getting uh, the high ground program out there, either running the machine through the field that I feel I have not run in the past and getting that data back in my hands or fields that we have done that on the past. We are getting fresh soil samples pulled out of those exact same locations and based upon those different zones that we have created there, I'm creating uh, individual recommendations. And we have plenty of applicators out here, whether it be a tree crop or uh, an open ground scenario row crop, we can get those products applied where they need to be applied and the rates they need to be applied. Um, and oftentimes we're saving growers a lot of money and not putting something where it does not need to be. So we get a lot of efficiencies out of that. Um, throughout the season, I do use the extractor or tissue samples um, basically in the, the tree crops for sure once a month. So I'm really staying on top of what things are looking like out there. And sometimes those are pulled out of specific zones as well. And also pulling tissue samples in every crop, just not as intensely as we are in almonds and pistachios. Sure. And I can imagine this year with all of this moisture and all the fertility going up and down, uh, you know, uh, with with all of the opportunities here, uh, boy, that extractor report is going to be pretty critical. A lot of things are going to be changing throughout the growing season. Uh, so having those, to your point, at monthly or so, is going to be very important. Uh, Matt, tell, tell us a little bit about uh, some of the crops that might be experiencing some stress. Um, you know, what are some products that growers might want to consider as we take a look uh, at stress in some of these crops uh, moving into 23? So first that comes to mind is, you know, our, our biggest crop is, is almonds. And as, as we consider um, these rains keep coming, it looks like it's forecasted to continue to be wet. Um, it's fine right now where the tree's dormant, but as the tree rakes up, the roots start to respire and it's got some wet feet. It's really hard for all those metabolic processes to do what they need to do. So we found it really helpful to apply some of our Helena products. One is called Exploit. Um, you apply it at Bloom. Um, to seaweed extract, it's got all kinds of good um, ingredients and modes of actions that help the metabolism, especially the nitrogen. When your when your nitrogen isn't you know basically being taken up as, as as efficiently as it could be because of the wet soil, we found out that product's been pretty helpful. Another one is, is Megaful. 
Um, we saw a lot of megafold <clears throat> all year round. And when you get some of these, and like right now it's going to be really cold. And some of our crops, we're maybe replying a herbicide on weed or triticale. And the way these herbicides, you know, they kill the weed, but they don't kill the crop because the crop can metabolize a herbicide. Well, megafold we found helps these crops meta metabolize the herbicide that's applied over the top better than when it's not applied. So we typically apply a rate of megafold in most herbicide applications on our winter wheat or triticale. Those are two, two management um, practices that we find pretty helpful. That's awesome. You know, earlier on, uh, Matt, we talked a little bit about the importance of planning, the importance of having a plan. And, you know, you, you go into these kind of seasons, and I know, Brian, you probably did the same thing with your customers last fall, plan, having this great plan, and then boom, we get all this rain, which is awesome, but we need to adjust those plans. Um, you know, with these recent rains, what, uh, what kind of plans do we need to, we talked a little bit about the financial side. Are there any other things that we need to be thinking about as we um, you know, plan for 23 right now, and you're just really weeks away from the crop really kicking in gear. So basically all the plans were kind of laid in stone last fall. And now with all these rains, things are changing a little bit. Um, one of the biggest things we're faced with out here is called SIGMA, and that is the uh, acronym for Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. And that restricts our pumping out of the ground by quite a bit in Westlands Water District very significantly. So they were limited to be able to pump 1.3 acre feet this coming year. And I think within about five or six years, it'll be a seven inch maximum on pumping. Other districts are faced with that as well, just probably not quite as severe. Um, I believe these rains we're seeing right now will alleviate the pressure we're seeing from that this year. I should overcome that plus add some additional allocation. Um, so obviously there's nothing to plant when it comes to an almond or a pistachio, they're already in the ground ready to roll. On the row crop side, tomatoes are a big crop for us out west here and requires a little planning on that. You've got to get your seed into a greenhouse, get it germinated and growing, and you put your transplant out in the field. So you can't just say today, I want to plant tomatoes tomorrow and make it happen. Um, I think there will be some additional acres of tomatoes secured due to this extra allocation we're looking forward to. Um, but I think we will see an increase in cotton acres this year. It's been pretty slim for us the last few years, whereas my early years, it was uh, almost 100% of what we had at this location here. Um, cotton is pretty simple to turn a switch on and plant a couple days later. So I think we will see a shift in that regard back towards our Hanford location here. You can see a little more shift of that towards corn as well. And like Matt mentioned earlier, primarily for silage for dairy feed. Yeah, a lot of changes, a lot of opportunities, you know, for some crops that growers maybe not have touched for a long time. And now, now maybe a gap, and there'll be a lot of uh, pencils being sharpened, I'm guessing, here as we enter the next 20 to 30 days here. Critical time for you growers out in uh, the central part of California. Uh, Matt, Brian, um, as we kind of wrap up, are there any last thoughts that you guys like to share with our listeners about some of the recent rains as well as some of the opportunities in, uh, in your market this year? I would just say, for me, if, if you you know if you're not familiar with California agriculture and how it works, I mean, you see on on the news and all the rain we got, there were some devastation, there was some flooding, um, but for a lot of part of the state, it was good. I mean, we've our reservoirs are filling up; um, they're back to close to normal, which is amazing that they can get back to normal in a short you know four five weeks. Um, but this 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 rain that we get is is critical for agriculture to thrive out west because. We're not a rain-fed environment. Uh, everything is almost 100% irrigated, and we need this rain uh, and the, the storage of the rain in the form of snow and reservoirs to, to make ag you know, work out west. That's awesome. 
And Brian, anything, any last parts here? Yeah, I think uh, kind of the setbacks we have seen with all this rain, we've been at almost an absolute standstill for three weeks, getting very little done. Um, but I think guys are very willing to accept that. We can take these setbacks and not get things done, pass up on things that we wanted to do, as long as we get these allocations that are just absolutely critical to us to, to be able to farm some acres that wouldn't otherwise be farmed and uh, to be able to help the soil leach the sodium out that we've been damaged with the last couple of years, putting all that extra stress on our crops. Very hot years, the last couple of years, kind of extreme heat for a couple of years in a row. And that coupled with those salts in the soil from the well water has just been very damaging to almost all of our crops. And this provides a major relief for us. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Brian. You know, uh, these natural rains like this are really going to clean clean the soil out a little bit and uh, maybe hit that reset button for a lot of producers in your market. And uh, uh, so good things are going to happen out of all these rains. And hopefully they kind of continue in a timely manner and adequate manner uh, to you know produce the yields that uh, – uh, that you and your customers really uh, hope to have. Um, guys, I want to thank you joining us here today on FieldLink. Uh, we appreciate all that you do. Um, and I encourage all growers to uh, in your market to reach out to your Helena representative to learn more about some of the opportunities to maximize your yield as we take a look at uh, 2023. Thank you, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Hey, folks, I want to thank you uh, very much for joining us here on this episode of FieldLink. If you haven't already, we encourage you to go out and subscribe to the FieldLink podcast on your favorite platform. 